0: struggled all week to put the message together and uh i spent 11 hours on wednesday alone just working on the message and uh i couldn't sleep on wednesday night and i woke up on thursday morning and i go no that's not it that's not it and and i had to record something for sandy and kind of feel like the lord's just kind of saying no i got something else i want to do today you know <laughs> and i will I, I will kind of share a little bit from my notes and and uh What I just feel the Lord is just putting, you know what, you can take off. I feel bad having you sit there. Man, give it up for our team. Give it up for our worship team. So, so appreciative of what God is doing. But uh, I, I, I've been sensing for a while, and, uh, and honestly, probably months and months and months, the Lord's stirring in, our, in the midst of our church, and I think you know this, I think you can feel this, uh, that God is up to something in our church. It's not business as usual, and, uh, and we just want to kind of follow his lead, and, and, uh, and certainly through the fall, the Lord was just kind of moving in our hearts and challenging us uh, in our relationship with him. And I've heard from so many different people uh, just what the Lord, yes, thank you guys. Give it up for our middle school guys. Thank you, sorry. (laughs) I won't blame it on Jesus that I forgot to let our middle schoolers go, but you know... (laughs) Um, and uh, we 've just sensed that the Lord is just uh, kind of stirring in us, and, and this series in particular, has been kind of been brewing in me for, for a while and, uh, and just trying to in fact if i 'm honest, I probably should have made it a 12 week series and uh, how, you know try to get through Ephesians in five weeks, my goodness, you know but it, it, there is a sense that the Lord is doing something in our church and not just in you as an individual but in us as a church family. How many of you would agree with that and say, it certainly feels that way, right? And there's a, as a staff, we actually met this week and, and uh, kind of our lead team and you know, kind of ministry leads, you know, and so uh, we were just kind of rehearsing, man, what is it that God has been up to? And there were two words that came out of our time together uh, that were really used to kind of describe where we are at as a church. And there were two words, and I think they're the most amazing words, healthy and hungry healthy and hungry and i think that uh, as a church family uh, you know we could look back and there's been seasons when there's been real challenge but man we're looking back over this previous season and just recognizing that the lord has has brought us to a place of health as a community would you agree it's okay to shout at the preacher it's all right it's okay But what I'm sensing the Lord doing in us is he's saying, I'm deepening a hunger for me and for my presence. And that there's this growing, deepening hunger for us to be who God has called us to be as a community, as a church. And when you look at the book of Ephesians, you recognize that the book of Ephesians was written to a group of people. In fact, if you understand, Paul's in prison. It's AD 62. Paul's in prison. He's been in prison for about two years. He's in Rome. He's been kind of on house arrest. He's in a, 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 probably a rented home. But for two years, he has been chained to a Roman guard because that's how they did it. And so he's been chained to this, well, not probably the same Roman guard, because Roman guards would be chained to him and they would get saved because they were a captive audience. (laughs) And here's Paul under house arrest or in prison, chained to to a Roman guard. But what he's recognizing is, and this is what's so interesting, in Ephesians 3 verse 1, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Messiah Jesus or King Jesus... But wait, Paul, you're not a a prisoner of Jesus. You're a prisoner of the Romans because of the Jews. You can go read about that in Acts chapter 21. But, But Paul sees it from a different perspective. And maybe the challenge for us is as we go through the valleys of life, that it's okay to look at those things and to recognize that, man, this might feel like a bad season, but God's up to something in the middle of it. Now, what I'm recognizing for us as a church family is that there's health, there's hunger, God is up to something, and we gotta, we gotta lean into that. And this was what was happening with Paul because Paul recognized, in fact, there's a reason why And we created a really cool bumper, and the Lord says, we're not gonna show the really cool bumper today, right? But the title of the series is Mystery Revealed. Because what Paul was recognizing was that there was a mystery that was being revealed to the people of God. In fact, you you can read it in uh, in Ephesians chapter three and and verse four or five, he says this, in reading this, well, what's he referencing? Well, he's referencing this letter that he has written to the church in Ephesus. In reading this, um, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was, made no, was, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit. And the, this little word mystery that was used, uh, that Paul uses over and over, not just in this letter to the church in Ephesus, but he uses it over and over again uh, throughout the New Testament. This little word mystery is a Greek word, apocalypsis. Now, when you hear the word apocalypsis, what do you think of? Apocalypse, right? The apocalypse. And what do you think of when you think of the English word apocalypse? And times, right? That's not what it meant. Right? What it actually meant was that something that was hidden has now been revealed. And Paul's writing with, like, gusto and excitement because as he's writing this letter, and and we should talk a little bit about what does it mean for Paul to write letters because sometimes, how many, when's the last time you wrote a letter? Anybody? I mean, we just don't write letters today, right? In fact, the last time I wrote a letter was when I first moved from Ireland to America. I went to Bible college. There was no uh, iPhones to FaceTime my parents. There was no computers to send email. Uh, Phone calls were expensive. So I actually had to write letters, can you believe this, to my parents. And I used to cheat because how many of you remember the airmail envelope? Like it was an envelope that actually was a letter, like it was a piece of paper and then it folded up, right? So I, I wanted to, I, didn't, I couldn't write three-page letters, but you know the airmail ones were like one page. So I would write a letter, you know, seal that thing up, send it to my parents, and about a week and a half later, they would get it. And, and we have a tendency to look at letter writing, and we, that's what we think of. But for Paul... For the New Testament writers, this was not some casual affair with just a kind of a few thoughts that he was kind of jotting down that they should understand. It was seriously expensive to write a letter. There were wax tablets where Paul was constantly writing down ideas. There was parchment where he was formulating those ideas. In fact, at the end of 1 Thessalonians, he writes to Timothy and he says, "Hey, make sure to bring my cloak and my notebooks. Paul was formulating, he was putting together with God's help these revelations, this mystery that was being revealed. And so there would be wax tablets, there would be parchment, there would be scrolls. They'd have to hire a scribe. That scribe would create drafts of that letter. It would be reviewed by Paul and others. And finally, maybe after weeks or months, that letter would be ready to be sent to whoever he was writing it to. And so Paul, over in Rome, is sending a letter that's probably taken him weeks, if not months, to craft and to write, probably cost thousands of dollars in today's money to do that. And then he gives it to somebody, because remember, there was no USPS, which is maybe a good thing, and he gives it to somebody, and that private party has to carry this letter some 1,200 miles to Ephesus, And what would happen is that the the church in Ephesus would gather, much like we're gathering this morning, and Phoebe or whoever had delivered that letter would open up the letter and read it from start to finish to this congregation. Now, you and I, we don't really read the Bible that way, do we? I mean, we tend to read the Bible like, Lord, I need a verse today. Anybody ever done that? You know, it's like shaking the magic eight ball, you know, like, oh, Lord, I need... Yes, okay, you know. Nope, that's not the right verse, right? We don't read it that way. Or maybe we have a devotional that we use. But the point that I want you to hear this morning is that there is great energy that went into writing this letter. That that it was designed to be read aloud from start to finish so that you and I, so that the hearers, could understand the themes and the thoughts and what it was that Paul was delivering to this particular church and by extension to us as a church family. And what Paul is saying here is in Ephesians 3 verse 4, he says, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which has not been made known to a people in other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit. He goes on and says to the apostles and the prophets. And what Paul is trying to help us understand is that there is a great mystery that once was hidden, but is now revealed. There's something that we didn't see, we didn't understand, but now because of Jesus Christ, we can see it clearly. Clearly. If how, many of you, how many of you remember the mall? <laughs> how many of you went to the mall in the 90s? Come on, you know, the dream of the, right? The dream of the 90s is alive in Portland, right? Do you remember when you went to the mall in the 90s? Remember they had these posters up that like were these abstract repeating patterns, you know, and there was like a crowd of people kind of gathered around it and they're all like kind of staring at it. Like they're trying to relax their eyes because there's something hidden in the picture, how many, any, any of you remember that? Some of you were really good at it. I could never see the picture. I have like weak inside muscles, so my eyes would just go bing, you know, could never see it. But once you saw it, you couldn't unsee it. It was right there for everyone to see. Well, this is exactly what Paul is trying to do through the letter of Ephesians. He's trying to help Christians see the mystery that is in Christ. In fact, Ephesians reveals God's version Of reality. And what I wanna do over the next few weeks is that I wanna walk us through, like obviously in five weeks we can't do everything, but what I wanna do is I wanna walk us through some of the themes, some of the things that Paul is bringing to light because they're truly revelatory. They transform and change the way you and I would live our lives. And, And what you discover through this letter to the Ephesians is that God's vision is way bigger than our version of reality. That God's vision, God's mission, God's purpose, the thing that God is up to in the planet is so much bigger than what you and I have typically perceived. In fact, in our American society, maybe I should be fair to America and say in our Western industrialized society, we have reduced Christianity to something that's wasn't in Paul's mind, to be honest with you. In fact, we've, we've kind of, I, I put this little drawing together, we've kind of reduced it to this kind of idea that it's God plus me. Awesome. Oh, wait, I got this problem with sin. And sin seems to put me in God's books, like, or God's bad books, like God doesn't like me. And so because of sin, I'm gonna end up in the sad place, the unhappy place, hell. And none of us wanna go there because that just seems miserable, right? And so, thank God for the cross. Thank God for the resurrection. Because of the cross and the resurrection, we have the opportunity through Jesus Christ to avoid the sad place and get to the happy place, heaven. Here's the problem with that Americanized, Western industrialized version of the gospel. It's just not in the Bible. I mean, maybe a tiny piece of it. But what we discover through Ephesians is that God's picture of reality is way bigger than what most of us, many of us, have been brought up on. Or at least what culture would tell us the gospel is. You know, Billy Sunday, who was a very famous baseball player that became an evangelist in the first two decades of the 20th century. He said this, he said that the trouble is that most of us have enough religion to make us miserable. And when you read the letter to the Ephesians, you begin to understand God's vision, God's mission, and you start to recognize, wait, this is way bigger than I ever thought it was. It's way more majestic. It serves a way bigger purpose. And God actually wants you and I to play a part in it. And so what we discover is that, in fact, if you've got your Bibles, and I encourage you, man, take the time to read Ephesians as we journey through this over the next couple of weeks. But I want to read these verses in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 22. He says this, I keep asking that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you understand that, that you, he's Lord, Jesus, and Christ is not his last name. You understand that, right? When you see Jesus Christ, Christ is the, is the Greek for this Messiah, King Jesus. Right? And, and so when Paul uses this phrase, he's saying, I've prayed to God the Father of our Lord King Jesus. Like That ought to tell you where Jesus ought to be in your priority list. And he goes on and he says this, the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So Paul, he's praying this glorious prayer in the second half of chapter one. And he's saying, I'm praying to God. I'm praying to King Jesus that he would reveal to you the mystery of Christ so that you would know him better. He goes on in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Know the hope, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not not only in the present age but also in the one to come and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything and then look at this for the church now when I read that that sounds an awful lot more than Jesus saved me to help avoid hell but we've lived in a culture Where for decades we have reduced the gospel down to something that helps me avoid going to hell. And we get just enough Christianity, just enough religion to make us miserable. And yet that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what God's intent is. When he unveils this mystery through Christ, he's inviting us into something way, way bigger than just avoiding hell. Just to raise, raising great moral kids. God's inviting you and I into something that he has been unfolding from the day he created the planet. And he says, I want you to be a part of it so it's not about avoiding hell. Look at this. Paul wants you to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you can know God better. He wants you to know, to understand the hope that you have been called and to live that out. He wants you to experience the power that raised Christ from the dead. God wants you to be a part of his story. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, he says this, for we, come on, look at your neighbor and say we, that means you, right? We, are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so Paul is pulling back the curtain on this mystery of the gospel, this mystery that's unveiled in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you have a part to play in this. You are invited into this. And honestly, this is what I want to do just over the next few weeks is I want us to pull back the curtain and to understand what it is that God has invited you and I into and the part that you and I would play. And so the the first question is, well, how is it then that we step into this plan? If if. There's this mystery of Christ that reveals that it's not just about me avoiding hell. It's not just about me kind of raising some good kids that, that hopefully uh, you know kind of avoid some of the negative stuff going on in our culture. If there's this mystery that God wants me to have this wisdom and revelation that I might know him better, that I might uh, receive hope and live out hope and, and give hope to the world in which we live. If there's this mystery that's revealed that God says, I want you to experience the same power that raised Christ from the dead. How do we get there? What is it that we have to do? What is it that through Christ becomes available to us? And how do we step into it? And I think the first thing that we find is, is that there's, there's a change in status. Paul begins to reveal in this book that if you are a follower of Jesus, you've had a change in status. Now, um, I wanna show you a picture, don't laugh. Don't laugh. Is it up there? Yep, there we go. <laughs> Who are those kids? I mean, my wife hasn't changed one bit, wouldn't you admit? Yeah. Me, I've maybe gained a few pounds, <clears throat> gotten a little grayer. <laughs> but on October 7th, 1995, something monumental happened in my life. And it was on that day that I became a husband and I moved from singleness or singlehood, whatever the right word is, into the married life, right? And life would never be the same. And I wanna say life just keeps getting better and better and better because I married the right woman. Right? Come on. But the reality is that I on, on October 7th, 1995, I moved from one state of being a single man into another state of being, a married husband. And, and Paul is trying to, and according to Ephesians, uh, Paul is trying to help us understand that that's the same thing that happens to us when we come to Christ. That if we're going to play our part in this unbelievable story that God is up to on planet earth, we've got to understand that the first thing that takes place is that there's a change in status when we come to Christ. Look what Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, as for you, poke yourself in the chest, as for you, as for me, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, dead is dead. Dead is not fog a mirror. Dead is not there's some purpose in life. Dead is dead, there is no life. And what Paul is saying is that you and I were dead. And it says, in our trespasses and sins. And, and he's not doubling down. He's not, they're, they're not synonyms of each other. When Paul says trespasses, what he's saying is that you were dead in your moral failure, right? In other words, you know the right thing to do, but you choose to do the wrong thing anyway. Paul said it this way in Romans, I do the thing I don't wanna do and I don't do the thing that I wanna do. Anybody ever been there? It happens in January around diet season for me every year. But you've been there, haven't you? And so when Paul says you're dead in your transgressions, he's saying you are dead, choosing always to do the wrong thing. But the the little word that he uses for sin doesn't necessarily mean kind of this choice to do wrong things. What it means is to miss the mark. In other words, what he's trying to communicate is you and I were actually created for a purpose, a godly purpose, a purpose of bringing him glory, a purpose of extending the kingdom of God here on earth, a purpose of being good in the midst of darkness. But it says that we failed. And so we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. But he goes on and he says in verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, what did he do? Made us alive with Christ Jesus. And even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And so we recognize that we have what's taking, what Paul is telling us here is that there's a change in status that happens because of Jesus Christ. And I find it interesting that the Lord seemed to lead us that way this morning. He says, man, there's an exchange that takes place. You were dead in your transgressions and in your sins, but because of the rich mercy of God, because of the work of Jesus Christ, there's a change in status. You are made alive. It goes on in verse six and says this, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Look at this, in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Don't you see it? Do you see what's happening here? Do you see that that Jesus, the mystery of Christ, wasn't so that you and I could just avoid hell? It's so that there could be a change in status from death into life, and that life is actually calling us to be a part of something that God was already up to on planet Earth. He wants to show The incomparable, where's it says? The incomparable riches of of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And when you read the rest of Ephesians, you start to realize all the practicalities of that and how that's all playing out in the life of a believer, that God is calling you and I into something, not just calling us to avoid something. And the reality is that because of Jesus We have a change in status. You know, on October 7th, 1995, my status changed from singleness or from being single to being married. And I was given a new purpose in that moment. And that purpose was to love and to cherish and to nurture and to serve my wife so that she could become all that God has called her to be. Go read Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. And so this change of status comes now with a change of purpose. That God has not just changed me or moved me from death to life, but in moving me into life, He's given me a purpose. He's given me something that I'm supposed to do. And isn't that what Jesus does for us? That little phrase in Ephesians chapter 1 that we just read in verse 22, or verse 23, all of this happened through Jesus, who for? For the church. And we understand that Jesus did all that Jesus did. In fact, Jesus isn't done. He's seated in the heavenly realm. The Bible says that he makes intercession for each one of us. God has done all that he has done through Jesus Christ, not so that you could just avoid hell, but so that you would be called into not just a new status, but a new purpose in partnership with him. And what we discover when you, when you read through the book of Ephesians is that, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, it's at work in you. It's helping you to overcome sin. It's helping you to step into the call and to the purpose of God. And so, mind blowing. But here's what's so amazing. We recognize that, how many of you know that on October 7th, 1995, Gareth became a husband, but for 27 plus years now, Gareth has been becoming a husband. And sometimes I do well and talk to my wife. Sometimes I don't do so well. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes I fall short. And, and what, I, what we need to recognize, and this is what we discover in Ephesians chapter 1, is that Jesus didn't just give us a new status of being alive. Jesus gives us a new identity. Now, unfortunately, in our version of Christianity, I know that none of you in this room believe that Western industrialized version of Christianity that we talked about and I've ragged on a couple of times, right? But what happens oftentimes is that because we can reduce the gospel and this mystery of Christ down to I'm just avoiding hell. What unfortunately happens is that I can profess Jesus, I can believe in Jesus, but I can allow the world in which I live to define my identity. And identity is a hot button issue, isn't it, in our culture? you got identity politics, you got gender identity, you got cultural identity, you got identity crisis. Our culture is obsessed with identity, and there's all kinds of forces that are at work seeking to shape your identity. The identity of your kids, the identity of your grandkids. In fact, I love how uh, Eric Erickson, he's a developmental psychologist, and this is how he says it, "...in the social jungle of human existence there is no feeling of being alive without a sense of identity." I love how Keller says it, he says this, identity is our sense of self and self-worth. It's our core trust and our source of value and recognition. It's whatever we look to as the ultimate source of security and worth. In other words, who are you at your core and where do you find your value, your worth? That's identity. And you could understand in the world in which we live that's so trying to shape our identities, Jesus has something to say about our identity. That Jesus wants us to understand that we've not only been given a new status of being alive, but in Jesus Christ, we are given a new identity. And the reality is that every culture without permission or without naming it as such kind of imposes some sort of identity formation process on us. And if we're not careful, we will allow our, our identity to be shaped, the things that we uh, dri- derive value from, from our culture. Our jobs, our achievements, our kids, our possessions, our status, our titles, our pleasures, and even our failures can shape our sense of identity and who we are. And I think as a result of all of those cultural pressures that try to form and shape all of us as human beings into something, it's left us exhausted, it's left us chasing after things, it's left us more stressed, more anxious, more discouraged, more more depressed, go look at all the statistics, than ever before. And yet Ephesians teaches us that identity is received, not achieved. Your identity, according to the Bible, according to the teachings of Paul and of Jesus, your identity is received, not achieved. And I want you to maybe maybe this afternoon, take some time, go read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, it's one big run-on sentence. And look what he says in Ephesians chapter one. He says, you are faithful in Christ. You are blessed in Christ. You are chosen in Christ and chosen by the way to be holy, that is set apart and blameless. You are adopted in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. You are forgiven in Christ. You have an inheritance in Christ. You are sealed in the Holy Spirit in Christ. Do you notice a recurring theme in there? What's the phrase that Paul uses over and over again? What? I said you are, but in Christ. Somebody gets the gold, Mikey, you get the gold star. In Christ. In fact, Paul would use this phrase, in him, in the beloved, in Christ, 36 times in the book of Ephesians. He uses it 11 times in the chapter one alone. 216 times in the New Testament writings of Paul, he says, you are in Christ, you're in the beloved, you are in him. Now, how many of you know, and I know parents know the answer to this question, how many of you know that when we say, when we repeat something over and over and over, some of you parents have repeated something 216 times to your kids, haven't you? Right, brush your teeth, brush your teeth, brush your teeth. Why is it that you tell your kids to do this? Two reasons. One, it's important. You're going to end up with cavities and no teeth and nobody's going to want to marry you and you're not going to be able to get a job and you're going to be in my house, right? It's important, so brush your teeth. But the second reason why you tell your kids over and over and over and over and over and over again to do the same thing is because they forget. And what Paul, oh my gosh, what Paul is trying to help us to understand is that you have not only been given a new status. You're no longer dead. You are alive with Christ because of Christ, because of this mystery that has taken place. But Paul goes further and he says, you need to understand that your identity is in Christ. Your identity is received. It's not achieved. And doesn't it make sense then that the enemy tries to get you to forget who you really are? The opinions of other people, the whispers in your own head, the lies of the enemy that try to shame you over and over and over again. Because the enemy knew something that Paul clearly knew that if you and I are gonna step into this mystery, this thing that God has called us to, not just about avoiding hell, not just about trying to raise our kids. By the way, I think that we're gonna raise a generation of Daniels and Esthers, and we're making an investment into that because that's our belief. We're not trying to help kids avoid something. We're trying to help kids understand who they are in Jesus Christ so that they can go out and change the world in which they live. And we wanna make those kinds of investments, why? Because we believe in this mystery that's revealed in the book of Ephesians, that you've been given a new status. You're no longer dead, but you are alive. But you've not just been made alive, you've been given a new identity in Jesus Christ. I think that's why Jesus said in John 15 over and over and over again, I need you to remain in me, remain in me. Make your home in me, remain in me, abide in me, stay in me, don't step outside of me. Come on, that's where your identity comes from. Your identity is rooted in Christ. And it's a mystery because it doesn't feel that way. Because most of us deal daily, weekly, monthly, like we just deal with sin, there's this battle, there's this war that's going on inside of us around sin. But what Paul wanted us to understand, and it's the first theme that I want to bring to our attention as we unpack this over the next four or five weeks, is that you have been given a new status in Jesus and that you have been given a new identity in Christ. You're faithful in Christ even when you feel like you're not. You're forgiven in Christ even when you feel the shame of I let my master down one more time. The Bible says, You're adopted in Christ. Now this is what's so amazing about about Jesus Christ is that God doesn't just say you're justified, you're made legally right, you have right standing. He says, no, 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 you're adopted. You know, adoption is a relational term, not just a legal term. And what Jesus is trying to communicate, can you tell I'm excited? What Jesus, oh my gosh. What Jesus is trying, if we could get this, we would be totally different human beings because we'd understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and it would cause us to live from a totally different place. We wouldn't live in defeat. We wouldn't live in shame. We wouldn't live in guilt. We would live with freedom as we sang about earlier this morning, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And it's why we make such a big deal of Jesus. It's why the Bible makes such a big deal of Jesus. It's why for the rest of my days, I'll make a big deal about Jesus. Colossians 3.3, you know where your life is? It's hidden in Christ. And what the Lord's been doing in us over the last number of months is he's been calling us to himself. Sometimes we don't always understand, what is it you're up to, God? Oh, I've got a big story. See, I've gathered a community of people in Happy Valley and Sandy, and I'm inviting them to live out my story, not their story. I'm inviting them to live out my story and to do it the way Jesus showed them to do it. And if they could only understand who they are as individuals, And if they could only understand who they are as a community filled with hope and power and life and forgiveness and living from a totally different place of, man, I can confess and I can repent because he loves me. I'm already adopted. I'm forgiven. I was meeting with one of my old professors from Bible college this week and we were talking all this stuff through and he says, most Christians, and I loved how he said this, most Christians are more saved than they know. Think about that. Because the enemy comes to rob you of your identity. And we started this, whatever this is, by just recognizing that there's an exchange that God wants to take place. And I want you just to close your eyes this morning, because I believe that there's some of the room that, man, what God wants to do, whoa. Man, he wants to change your status. He wants, you to move, he wants to move you from death to life. He wants you to move you from this place where, man, the enemy's robbed you of everything. And you're trying, maybe even in your own strength, to get there, to do it. And Jesus says, quit, I've already done it. When Jesus went to the cross, he did what you could never, ever do. He paid the penalty for your and my sin. And he did it so that you, not just that you would avoid hell, he did it so you don't have to struggle and strive and try to find your sense of identity and purpose and avoid shame, all those things in your own strength. You can't do it. But Jesus did it for you. And all he says is, hey, if you want to be in me, here's all you need to do. Believe in me. Acknowledge your sin. The Bible says, when I acknowledge my sin, believing that he's the one that paid for it, he not only only saves me, he adopts me as a son and as a daughter. And so this morning, as we close, I think there's some people in the room, and it only happens by the illumination of like, The Holy Spirit, like, I feel drawn to this. Like, I I want that kind of life. I don't want to be in death. I don't want to, I want that. That's what, that's the invitation this morning. And if that's you this morning and you're saying, man, I want to give my life to Jesus, recognizing what he has done for me, change of status, no longer dead in my trespasses and in my sin, but alive because of Jesus. If that's you this morning, and would you just slip your hand up? And all you're doing is saying, Jesus, this is an outward sign of something that's going on in my heart. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your life. And so if that's you this morning, just slip up your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Jesus, this morning, you just pray this prayer with your words and your heart, Lord Jesus, this morning, we simply say, thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you that you came, lived the life I could never live, died the death that I deserved, but rose again so that I could be forgiven, but not just forgiven, that I could be given life and I could be given a new identity. There's a second group of people that I want to, pray for this morning, and that's those of you who know Jesus, who've been walking with Jesus, but maybe you've allowed the world in which we live, the opinions of others, the voice in your own head, the shame, the lies of the enemy, to get you to believe you're somebody that you're not. And it's caused you to live a certain way. It hasn't caused you to live with a sense of purpose and a sense of call and a sense of I belong to another. His name is Jesus and he's given me a new identity as a son and as a daughter. And if that's you this morning, I simply want you to slip your hand up and you're just saying, Jesus, that's me. And Lord, I'm exchanging whatever that is, whatever fear, whatever shame, whatever guilt, whatever voice has gone on in my head, I'm exchanging that this morning. Come on, if that's you, slip your hand up this morning. I got my hands up. And Lord Jesus, we're hands in the air, Lord Jesus, because we're surrendering to you. We're surrendering to your grace. We're surrendering, Lord Jesus, to the truth of your word that says, I've not only been given a new status, I'm given a new identity. And so Lord Jesus, help us Lord, personally, individually, but help us as a church family to live out of that place so that we might give you glory in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen.